0: The French painter Maurice de Vlaminck told this story about how he came to art. He says, I must have been about eight or ten. It was in the Plan de Ruelles in summer, in midsummer. We followed a path beneath the scorching midday sun, and suddenly before me there was a field of corn, a cornfield with poppies and cornflowers and humming flies. I painted the cornfields, and every time I painted them, it was with the same feeling, that feeling of astonishment I had when I was ten. Now, I like to compare that story, and the thousands of others like it from other artists and writers, with an hour of radio that I once heard devoted to two classical composers, Between the host and the guest scholars and everyone who called in with memories of their music, it was a great time. And while each scholar favored one composer over the other, and while some of the callers claimed the same, and while even the host at times played the game and acted like it was a competition, there was no real or objective way to say who was the better composer. The reason that an hour of the day was being devoted to them, after all, was because of the experience of their music, the memories of their music, not for an intellectual game, not for making a bracket and declaring a champion. And as much as hours like that one on the radio serve to educate or to bring pleasure or to just pass the time, it's worth saying that they are very different, very different indeed from Maurice de Vlaminck's Moment of Illumination and Inspiration. And I mention all of this to ask, what use criticism serves? What use do our opinions about art serve, if any? I'm thinking of the reviews of books, movies, or music. I'm thinking of debates, of book-length studies, or of just an hour on the radio. Do some of us genuinely enjoy a good suggestion from a voice that we've come to trust? Is it simply comforting to read entire generations, sometimes centuries worth, of scholars intelligently discussing a favorite writer or painter or musician? And this is something that I am especially partial to. Or do some of us love a good fight, and just like to see a talented writer dissect and destroy a movie or a book with obvious relish? Is there just no other civilized way to find out what's happening, other than to have someone pretend that they're objective and write about it? Or are some of us just caught in the kind of trap which tells us that we can't read or understand author A unless we know what critics B through Z think of them? Whether we go in for any combination of the above, it's good to remember two things. First, is that nobody's opinions are final, including mine here, and that even the best criticism is just what we read or write in between actually experiencing or creating new works of art. In the best sense, they pass the time. This is the only way, I think, to understand what George Orwell meant when he said this. As a rule, an aesthetic preference is either something inexplicable, or it is so corrupted by non-aesthetic motives as to make one wonder whether the whole of literary criticism is not a huge network of humbug." Quote. If criticism pretends to objectivity and certainty, it is most certainly humbug. But if we see it for what it is, if we see it as a Sometimes eloquent, sometimes entertaining, sometimes diverting and refreshing expression of someone's opinion, then we are on much firmer ground and we can take it for what it's worth or not take it at all. At best, all expressions of certainty or apparent objectivity that arise when talking about culture are just ways to organize our thoughts. They are ways of finishing what we've started, so that we can move on. One must have theories, the poet T.S. Eliot said as a young man, but one need not believe them. And the composer Philip Glass said much the same thing, when he suddenly realized the real nature of what his music teachers had taught him. This is what Philip Glass says in his memoirs. He says, in a flash, I finally understood that the whole system of music I had learned, starting with Mr. Johnson as a child, and going right on through Mademoiselle Boulanger, had been just that, a system, consensual in its very language, and no more eternal than the human beings that contrived it. But it didn't make it any less beautiful. And David Norbrook introducing a book of English poetry from the 1600s that he edited, says simply, we cannot read the past without models, and the important thing to be aware of is that they are just models. End quote. It's good to have some way to organize our ideas, in other words, but we mustn't mistake mere organization for dogma. As these remarks suggest, whether we are professional critics or just admirers and consumers of culture. So many of our attempts to talk about books or movies or music are just convenient gestures. They are necessary and unavoidable ways of getting on with things because it's when we get stuck on them that problems begin and it's a deceptively easy process to see. Over the years, we accumulate a list of favorite books or poets or movies But at some point we feel obliged, we do, we feel obliged to oppose them with those books or poets or movies that we don't think are as good. And in no time, the picture that we have of these warring sides, aren't a matter of opinion, but of fact. And by this point, we're sure that the bedrocks of meaning in our lives have to be facts, have to be solid, have to be unassailable. But they never are in part because there is no end, there is no final knowledge, there is no final way of seeing or knowing or categorizing anything. For an idea or a work of art to have any meaning beyond a moment, they have to be uncontainable, they have to continue to ripple on and on. An hour of radio, a dissertation finally finished, The end of a book or the last word of a debate, the sense of finality and authority associated with any of these things are necessary just to get to another hour of radio, another book, another discussion, or just to silence, beautiful silence, to rest there. But this sense of an ending, this sense of authority, uh, is also illusory. In the best sense, and in the most fruitful way, All of these things have simply passed the time. Now Picasso has described what happens, though, when the work of critics completely consumes the art they're trying to comment on. And Picasso says this, mathematics, trigonometry, chemistry, psychoanalysis, music, and whatnot have been related to cubism to give it an easier interpretation. All this has been pure literature, not to say nonsense, which has only succeeded in blinding people with theories. Just read that last sentence again. All this has been pure literature, not to say nonsense, which has only succeeded in blinding people with theories. And I wonder what our equivalents of that uh, today are, where we are blinded with theories and Picasso's friend, the painter George Braque, put it even more succinctly when he said, The moment people started to define Cubism, to establish limits and principles, I got the hell out, quote. In much the same way, the Catholic medieval philosopher Desiderius Erasmus at first spent decades, entire decades of his life trying to, quote, correct and improve the many errors that he perceived and the popular expressions of his church, such as their reliance on ritual and the, to him, superstitious adherence to saints and pilgrimages. Only after a lifetime of believing that a rational approach to a largely personal and irrational experience could improve his church, and only after his beliefs helped usher in the Protestant Reformation And an and an entire series of changes that he neither could have foreseen and certainly did not approve of. Did Erasmus finally come around to saying this? And this is a great statement of clarity from a thinker uh, like Erasmus. He says this: the essentials of our religion are peace and unanimity. I wonder how many of us would say that the essentials of any religion, uh, based on what we see on the news of the religious faithful out there um, is peace and unanimity. Uh, Does that appear to be essential to any religion out there these days? The essentials of our religion are peace and unanimity. These can hardly exist unless we make definitions about as few points as possible and leave many questions to individual judgment. It would be much better to put off such questions till the time when the glass shall be removed and the darkness cleared away and we shall see God face to face. But of course, the, uh, the religious version of that is if we are going to define as few points as possible, what do you do most of the time when you aren't either involved in prayer, ritual, or community? Uh, There, there is, there is an awful lot, There's a vacuum that judgment usually fills uh, that would not be filled if uh, you were left with so many things that did not have definitions. And the same thing, the academic version of that, would be uh, what do you do if you stop defining things and just experience them? I wonder what an English course or a creative writing class would be if you tried that out. And I, I ask that honestly. I know that it would be extremely hard to do. Um, it would be hard to to plan a curriculum based on the experience of poetry rather than the uh, deep and sometimes um, blinded with theories version of poetry. That is a, a genuine problem, but still, to the case at hand, How much grief would Erasmus have saved himself, and how much grief would he have saved others, had he focused on the experience of his own personal Catholic faith, rather than assuming that the power of his own mind could correct the entire edifice once and for all. And this brings me to a series of quotations about creativity. Um, A critic like Harold Bloom could claim, that literary criticism, quote, is the modern version of wisdom literature, that is, those books of the Hebrew Bible like Job or Proverbs. Um, So Bloom says that literary criticism is the modern equivalent of that. But as he is a critic and not a poet or a novelist, of course, that's what he would say. Similarly, the American poet Galway Cannell once said that for modern poets, quote, rhyme and meter, having lost their sacred and natural basis, amount to little more than mechanical aids for writing." But again, of course he would say this. And of course he would say this only after spending a great deal of his youth writing formal poetry before suddenly realizing that that was the wrong way for him to go. This need that we all seem to have, and I've only identified two examples of it, this need that we have to conflate the most important moments in our own development with the most, most important moments in everyone else's development is common enough, common enough and understandable. But the critic George Steiner, I think, says what is probably closer to the truth. And here comes a wonderful quote from the critic George Steiner. And I should just say as an aside here, because the print version of, of um, Notes from the Grid Uh, will not have these asides. Sixteen years it's taken to do all of these essays, and for a long time the title for this book was just Varieties, because there is a religious half to this book, which isn't done yet. And what I'm reading to you now, Notes from the Grid, is the secular, the cultural half. And for years and years, um, over the course of hundreds of books that I've been reading, All along the margins there are V's everywhere looking for quotations that I knew would end up going into this book, this book that ended up being quite small. And so many of those quotations have been edited out, they have just never even made it. But two quotations from an interview that George Steiner did with the BBC back I think in 2004, Once I heard them, once I copied them out, they have been in and they have never left. And they have been great lessons to me ever since I uh, came across them. And here is George Steiner talking on the BBC, and this is what he has to say. From the first sentence of my first book, which was called Tolstoy Dostoevsky, I said, If one could write a single page of Tolstoy's War and Peace or Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, who the hell would want to write a book about them. That is to say that there are light years between the acts of creation and even the finest criticism and commentary, which is our job. Uh, Pushkin had a wonderful image. He said, you're the mailman. Uh, Please carry the letters. And it's fun and exciting. I am immensely grateful for my life and profession. I'm a mailman. Sometimes I've been able to carry the letters to the right box, to the right readers, saying, read this, look at this. I've never mixed it up with writing the letter, as Pushkin most unkindly reminded us. Now, listeners of this podcast will understand, I think, just why I love that quotation so much. But, since I am a poet and not a critic, of course, that's what I would say. Of course, I would agree with George Steiner and not Harold Bloom. None of this, absolutely none of this, is objective, and since that's the case, all I can say is that, given the choice, I simply prefer the subjective experience of art, of experiencing art, rather than the subjectivity of reading somebody's criticism of art. For me, it's obvious that it's only after an intense experience of art or religion that we decide that we need to explain or categorize or judge it and it's obvious that while the impulse towards explanation fills newspapers and blogs and libraries that that impulse is secondary and it, it seems obvious to me that one reason for our love of criticism as opposed to experience is simply because a lot more of us are capable of criticism than we are of creating a lasting work of art or of being happy with our own private experience of art, so that what matters most to me is that primary experience of a work of art, of experiencing it or creating it, not its later dissection. But just because any of this is obvious to me does not mean that it should be obvious to anybody else. When T.S. Eliot began to make his name in London during his twenties and early thirties, it was just as much for his book reviews and his essays as for his poetry. Decades later, though, he sighed at the reviews that he wrote at the time, which smacked of, quote, the dogmatism of youth. And this is what Eliot said, when we are young, we see issues sharply defined. As we age, we tend to make more reservations, to qualify our positive assertions, to introduce more parentheses. We see objections to our own views. We regard the enemy with greater tolerance, and even sometimes with sympathy. When we are young, we are confident in our opinions. We are sure that we possess the whole truth, and we are enthusiastic, or we are indignant. And readers, even mature readers, are attracted to a writer who is quite sure of himself. Eliot would no doubt have agreed that his essays on Shakespeare, Marlowe, and Ben Jonson could in no way replace the experience of reading those poets. But he may have also added that it was an economic necessity to write the essays, since he wasn't making any money from his poetry, and he wasn't very prolific. Anyway, he may have even enjoyed writing the essays, which is something I haven't brought up yet. So that while I would prefer to live in the moment, while I, as an individual, and I'm sure Eliot as an individual, would prefer to live in the moment of writing my own poetry or reading the poetry of others, Eliot's predicament, and the predicament of other writers and teachers and artists out there everywhere, teaches me something new, something that I haven't mentioned at all in this essay, and that is this. Even the best of us cannot read or write poetry every hour of the day. And I like to compare this situation to sports. As much as the fans and players would prefer to exist in the euphoria of the game, the game can only go on for so long. And so before and during and after the game, And for years later, here come the commentators, as learned as any rabbi of the Talmud, parsing numbers and averages, weather patterns and venues, players and predictions, and the relation of all of it to the deep history of the sport itself. But even if the best sports commentators are nothing compared to the actual game they're talking about, they are still necessary. They are still necessary placeholders and breaks between the moments that we are really after. We cannot live with the undiluted experience of art all the time, and so talking about it is the warm-up or the cool-down from that experience. The same holds true, I think, for the many world religions whose various strains of theology or just their bake sales, or just their nights out at a baseball game, are also a way of holding space, a kind of thumb or forefinger, keeping the page in between the kinds of experiences which criticism, explanation, history, and classification just cannot touch. Religions are often born of intense individual experiences, but if they are to flourish, they cannot live perpetually in the presence of divine vision or singular illumination. Moses would have got, would not have gotten anywhere if he had simply been hanging out all the time in front of the burning bush. He had to go off and find a people. The vision is not enough. Now we unquestionably, we do need something, therefore, to fill our time in between these heightened moments, which are meaningless without the balance of what might be called, quote, regular time. As religious extremists and authoritarians or just snobby artists have shown, trying to live entirely in the haze of religious or artistic fervor or ideological purity only produces a hatred and condescension towards the kind of mundane everyday life that fuels these huge creative outbursts. But it's still that experience that we're after, and that experience is the only reason the placeholder exists at all, at least for me. And so I would say, amid the academic and media and social media debates that fill the world, try to imagine that what we call criticism, what we call the nonstop absorption of opinions parading as facts. Just imagine that it is actually just a convenient or civilizing way of trying to hold fire in our hands. It represents a way of talking about what is beyond words, and yet the comfort of brief eloquence or brief debate, the simple comfort of a, another essay about the Impressionists, must never blind us to the reason that we are here in the first place, that frightening revelation of what we cannot control or understand, but which nevertheless gives all of our lives meaning, the actual history, the actual experience, of culture, religion, and history. Now I began this essay with a childhood memory of Maurice de Vlamanck that led him to becoming a painter, and I will end it with a childhood memory from the literary critic Harold Bloom about when he first encountered one of his favorite poets at the age of 10. And this is what Bloom said, I began reading the poet Hart Crane in 1940, incessantly renewing the collected poems from the Melrose branch of the Bronx library, returning the volume only when my sister gave me the book for my twelfth birthday. It was the first book I ever owned, and it is with me still. Crane's poetry has been a touchstone for me, Bloom says, and we can imagine why. But then Bloom does what Bloom does. Bloom does what literary critics do. He goes on to put Crane in his pantheon of American poets, saying that Hart Crane's poetry, remains central to a full imaginative understanding of American literature." End quote. Now, even if you think that a statement like this can be proved objectively, and even though having a podcast has made me prone to exaggerated statements like myself, I have to ask if there was a reason for Bloom to say it. Doesn't the description that he gives of his childhood experience eclipse any top-five list he could ever come up with? Wouldn't you rather read two more pages of his memories of going to the library as a boy and renewing that book? I certainly would. And it's stories like these that I am drawn to more and more, and it's stories like those that I think I should occupy myself with after Notes from the Grid is done. And so I simply wonder How different our engagement with education or culture or religion would be if we spent as much time talking about these experiences as we do with the objective conclusions that we've been taught to believe that we've come to. I've always liked it that the actor Richard Burton could admit in his diaries that I am fascinated by the idea of something but its execution bores me. And this from the guy who played Hamlet a million times. In our especially results-driven world, where so much can be quantified with disturbing exactness, the idea that it's the process that matters and not the outcome, even to the point of not caring if there's an outcome at all, is very nearly miraculous. In this way, it's wonderful to think of Burton preparing to play Hamlet by rereading the play, or being aware of the long lineage of actors, from Burbage to Olivier, who preceded him, or meditating over what it is to be a father or a son, or just becoming aware of his own relationship to drama, acting, and art. It's wonderful to think that this was enough for him sometimes and that the rest literally was just scenery and stage managing. The real transformation and intensity occurred not in front of any audience, but in private. In wondering what this might mean in my own life, I realized that even if I leave a handful of decent poems or essays in my wake, my notebooks and my diaries, and now this podcast, might actually be the best of me. might actually be those words that I dash off quickly before going on to, quote, what I'm really trying to do. After coming upon his own books in used bookstores and seeing which parts people highlighted and underlined, the critic Harold Bloom made the same point, and he says this. What you pride yourself on the things that you think are your insight and contribution. No one ever even notices them. What you say in passing or what you expound because you know it too well, because it really bores you, but you feel you have to get through this in order to make your grand point. That is what people pick up on. What you really think you're doing may or may not be what you're doing. And when trying to figure out which of his poems to publish, Thomas Hardy rang the same bell, and he says this, an author cannot always tell what people will like most. Posterity alone can decide. And so generally I publish everything. When I have been in doubt about two or three poems, I afterward found out that those were often what some people like best and poems that I have been on the point of discarding have sometimes been used in anthologies. Going even further than this, stories from the lives of other artists and philosophers combine what Burton and Bloom and Hardy have said. Leonardo da Vinci's sketchbooks and his many unfinished scientific projects and paintings all point to a creative impulse devoted more to its own energy and curiosity than to any sense of completion. He even considered his Mona Lisa unfinished, and the image of him traveling with it during his last years, and working on it here and there, is an endearing one. And so is the image of Michelangelo at nearly 90 years old, still working on his Rondanini Pietà, a sculptural group apparently meant for no one else to ever see and which is according to one biographer simply quote a record of the old man's solitary need to express something meanwhile the philosopher and mathematician Gottfried Leibniz has been described this way endlessly energetic and fascinated by everything under the Sun and perpetually setting out to design a new sort of clock, or write an account of Chinese philosophy, and then dropping that project halfway through in order to build a better windmill, or investigate a silver mine, or explain the nature of free will, or go to look at a man who was supposedly seven feet tall." So that, for all the conscious awareness that goes into everything, From paying the bills or writing a poem or taking my daughter to school, I have to wonder what else is really accumulating beneath that seemingly regulated and scheduled surface. Sometimes the best way to see where I am with things isn't to look at what I am focusing on, a neat stack of books or notes, but rather to look at what I've left lying around what I've kept starting and stopping in between that focus that I think is so important. There was a time a few years ago when I realized that amid my usual and apparently shapeless loitering among so many podcasts and books, I kept coming back to the life and poetry of WB Yeats. For a while I thought that I could have been reading or listening to anything while sitting out on the front porch as my newborn daughter took a nap, when in reality, I was slowly discovering one of those poets and one of those lives that has become a great source of solace to my own life. And I should mention here something that I always mention in the podcast. And that is that I mention people like Yeats or Bloom or Thomas Hardy or Michelangelo, um, not as a prescription, not as a list for other people to run out and do and to find, but rather I hope that couching these names within my own personal experience, my own stories, I hope that that rather inspires people out there to wonder about the names and influences in their own life. It is never a matter of just uh name dropping in the worst way, but of wondering what other names and other influences other people have out there. And so Pablo Picasso's caveat to an interviewer is very apt here. Picasso says, you must not always believe what I say. Questions tempt you to tell lies, particularly when there is no answer. In other words, not only should we stop expecting creativity to justify itself with some gleaming, irrefutable finished product, and not only should we assume that artists will never know what, if any of their work will be remembered, we should also not expect their creators to know what to say about them. None of us should have easy descriptions, easy manifestos, easy speeches, easy anything at hand. It's hard enough to just get the damn thing done, let alone to suddenly be required to talk uh, eloquently about any of it. The moments of making and the moments of experience, those are the primal ones. The rest, the explanation, the reception, the study, the long history of study, All of these things are fun and glittering, and they get a lot of attention, but they are secondary to what are essentially private moments. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com.